0: Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast.
1: Folks, this is Christian Haynes from the Gamers with Glasses show. And we're happy to bring you another episode. And tonight I am joined by Nate Schmidt. Hi there. And Don Everhart. Hello. And tonight we don't have a special topic, but we've got some great games to talk about. Before we do so, I did want to mention a couple upcoming podcast episodes. Uh, we already released episode one of the Disco Elysium spoiler cast. That's me, Roger Whitson and Jamie Woodcock, uh, author of Marks at the Arcade, talking about that wonderful RPG. So we get the second episode coming out uh, probably next week and the third the week after that. I also wanna just give folks heads up that we're gonna have an interview with the developers Heart-Shaped Games, makers of We Are The Caretakers, a really cool tactics game, kind of an x game uh, about stopping poachers from poaching alien species. Uh, so yeah, so look out for that in our podcast feed. But why don't we just start off with some of the games we're playing. Don, what have you got on your agenda?
2: Two games. One which is uh, one that I've played most of the way through. It's it's a very much a chapter by chapter experience, and that's Shadow Tactics: Blades of the Shogun. And uh, the other is a remake, re-release of I, I think a remix. I don't know. It's Virtua Fighter V, Ultimate Showdown. And that game has come out so many different times, but it just came out again yesterday on PS4. So it's worth
1: playing. (laughs) How is Shadow Tactics finding you?
2: Shadow Tactics is uh, a curious experience. It's a squad-based, very stealth-heavy game set in early Edo period Japan, Um, so relatively well-trodden territory for for the medium. Um, It controls kind of like uh, earlier games uh, including Commandos, the earlier Desperados series, maybe even Syndicate if you played back that far. Um, Various levels have different layouts, you have different squad members with different abilities, Uh, You know, one has a trap, one has a shuriken, one has a sake bottle they can leave out as a distraction, and uh, what it has that a lot of previous versions lack is a difficulty curve that builds in a very smooth progression of how you encounter chapters with these different characters. Um, oddly good voice acting and, and characterization, uh, which is important because they keep combining and recombining the, the main cast of five characters for most of the game as you proceed through it. Uh, and as it's somewhat of a downside, um, a difficulty floor that is, to my mind, exceedingly high. Uh, mm-hmm. It has difficulty levels. It has a beginner, a, a normal, and an expert, but um, the beginner mode is heinously difficult for a beginner mode. It, and it, it, it's a funny thing because I think the curve, like I mentioned, the progression of the game is quite good, uh, mostly on the strengths of how it combines and recombines characters and gives you different sorts of objectives that you have to complete. There's a tremendous amount of flexibility built in. Minute by minute, the game is kind of like encountering a lot of different puzzle boxes, or locks uh, that you have to figure out how to unravel from whatever seems like the most vulnerable point to you. Um, But until you find what that point is, you know, you're you're spinning the wheel of the safe and trying to to be a safe cracker on Mm -hmm. guards moving about and rooftops and there's different types of guards and et cetera, et cetera. As you're doing that, um, it is ridiculously easy to get caught. Um, And when you get caught, yes, there is a chance that you could just brawl your way out of it, but it is deeply unpleasant to do. Um, The game regards it, I think, largely as a punishment. It's something you can maybe force your way out of, but it's not fun. And so what you probably do is quick load. And the game has this built in as a mechanic. There's a dedicated quick save button um, and a timer at the top of the screen that even tells you how long it's been since you last quicksaved. The timer even changes color. If, if you haven't quicksaved in under a minute, it's green. If it's been more than a minute, it turns orange and yellow and then even <laughs> red. Uh, it's it's this. There's a huge emphasis on what another game would be called save scumming. Um, all in the be service the of, like, <laughs> well, you, you've got to you know, you want to lockpick this guard combination in just the right, wonderful, shinobi way. And sometimes it works, and it feels great when a plan comes together. And sometimes finding the right combination for the plan is an exercise in frustration. Um, And uh, I've got two chapters on it to go, and we'll see uh, how it pans out in the end.
1: I played some of it, and I what I remember. One, I remember them really pushing that quick save and quick load function hard at the beginning, right? Like they, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about this. This is the game where, at some point in development, whether or not it was the beginning or maybe during, you know, QA testing, at some point they realized that that was going to have to be an integral aspect of the game, and I sort of like. I kind of appreciate the commitment to it, in part because this is a studio that this is their jam, right? Like, this is what they do now. They make top-down, real-time tactics games using the Unity engine, right? They Desperados 3 um, is their most recent one. I think Mm -hmm. they announced a Shadow Tactics either prequel or sequel recently. That's right, yeah. Um, So this is what they do, and I feel like they've developed this kind of, like, slow mode. that's actually not about flow and maybe it's just because i've been reading uh i think i'm going to review it for the site uh or do some maybe some impressions of it but i've been reading uh, braxton soderman's book against flow video mm-hmm. games and the flowing Subject uh from mit press and it makes like a really stringent case against getting in the flow and about the re- need for critical distance and i feel like this is a game where it's like critical distance is an aesthetic right yeah like, like that that's hovering a good... over and everything
2: That's that's a good description of it, because for another game, uh, this would be an exercise in frustration with atrocious pacing, right? You're you're controlling multiple characters, but you can only control one at a time. You're sort of rotating through them. um, And one false move or someone who you didn't see around the corner sees your character. Um one missed shot and and everything just goes to pot. Uh, because the stealth is so pure in the game that it really is. If you if you're noticed, you're noticed, people yeah. summon the guards, the whole situation explodes on you. But it's des- it isn't designed to be that kind of game, right? This isn't an action game where uh, you want to exist in a state of, you know, ultimate ninja, flow and and movement for that, you know, you should play Shinobi uh, on the PS2, which is arguably to my mind, the the apotheosis of that form. Um, Probably an unpopular opinion, but there you go. Uh, Instead, like you said, with the quick save and quick load and everything else about the way that the game is structured, it's structured very tightly around deliberately trying and trying and trying again until you get it just right and the lock clicks and you move straight through and the whole time you've been experimenting you've probably been building a plan in your mind of okay this happens they look the other direction i move this character through here they go they take down this person but they're not good at carrying bodies into bushes, but so that you need the other person, the other character here who is good at carrying bodies into bushes to pick up the corpse, and then they carry them into the bushes Well, this person keeps going so he can kill the next person, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's enormously satisfying to have that plan come together, and the game certainly gives you time to come up with that plan. And it's so much more about that than about the free flow of, of movement Uh, And and the exercise of power through the setting.
0: It's like there's something to be said for um, practice. Mm -hmm. And for a game that uses death to put you in a situation where you have to practice, where you're making runs through it, that you have a pretty good sense aren't going to be successful. I don't know. I was just, I was thinking about, how frustrating it was a decade and a half and some change ago to um, uh, not own a console and then try to play like Halo online, right? And everyone smears your ass because you never practice, you don't have time. And how games don't always build in the idea of practice into the Mm. difficulty level. I'm thinking you know, and and maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but um, a lot of the Legend of Zelda titles, I feel like pretty much give you the information, like the skills that you need in order to beat a Zelda game, you more or less have, and then you find items that get combined in different ways. But what you're describing is something more like, um, it's a, like, it's teaching you how to, continuously improve not just your understanding of what the mechanics are, but like their function. And I think it's cool mm. that the game kind of sets itself up to be kind of your tutor in that way. I've I've learned to appreciate games that use death as a teacher.
1: That makes me want to bring up Returnal for a moment and mm. oh, sure. hear about where Dawn is in that. Because I'm taking... <laughs> a little break from it and coming back to it and planning to come back to it at some point. Uh, But that's a game where I just kind of like hit a point where I was just like, okay, I'm enjoying the practice, I suppose, but there's a certain point where things start to look a little too samey. And I've been on these first two biomes over and over for a while.
0: Also, while you answer that question, would you like to clue me and the other uninitiated who don't own these consoles in on like, what the deal is with this game in general.
2: Sure, uh, it's, there's a reason why under the games we're playing part of the, the sheet we're working off of that I didn't include <laughs> return. You're welcome, <laughs> you're welcome Don. Uh, and, and that is, uh, although I play a lot of games in parallel and, and you know, pretty much anything I've played within a two week period, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm playing that. Um, which in this case would include Returnal. I haven't been playing it too much, and that's because I feel like I need a lot of space to play it I, in, hmm. in time and in energy. Um, I have a very hard time firing Returnal up without feeling like, okay, like this is a commitment. I'm going to get into it. Like I'm going into the Returnal zone. You know, and uh, I have to be really focused to play it. Um, I haven't gotten past the, the second bio myself. Yeah. Less because of the difficulty of the game, I think, and more because I just am reluctant to fire it up compared to something like Shadow Tactics or Virtua Fighter um, or even Splatoon too, which I've gone back to as, as a multiplayer Game du jour, um, because I mean, Splatoon is the opposite. You can hop in, play four minutes of that game, and feel really great about, like, well, that was fun. I had a fun four minutes. Uh, now yeah. I can pause it and go, you, know, yeah. you know, I have other things to do. I have to do the dishes, whatever, and I'll come back, maybe play another round. Same thing with Virtua Fighter, you know, I'll play around, right? Shadow Tactics, discrete chapters. They might take me an hour and a half to do, but it's like, well, one chapter at a time. I know how long this will be roughly like nothing's going to take me more than 90 minutes to 120 at the very most in shadow tactics and returnal isn't like that. Um, It's, it's somehow more of a commitment despite the fact that probably any given run of it, I'm going to die inside of 40 minutes. Um, And there's different paths, you know, that I can take that can make that, 40 minutes take me further into, you know, the second chapter of the game or not, depending on, you know, how I'm playing or building the character that I'm playing. But it just feels like such a commitment to play it. And I I am low on that at the moment for games. Yeah,
1: no, and just to give folks, you know, maybe a little knowledge, I think Nate was calling for it. You know, this is the PS5 exclusive game and it's a roguelite. And I think one of the things that, sort of Don was gesturing out there or at least the way i read that what you're saying Don, was that this is the game you might die in 10 minutes you might die in 45 minutes if you're having a good run or maybe an hour or so but you're probably going to die unless you're getting all the way to the end which is going to be rare and you're not going to accumulate much on the way this isn't like a roguelite where you're going to get something every run necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like you might get like a little token or something that will slightly, very slightly give you an increment uh, of progress that makes you feel uh, like you've done something. But is it one of those games where you could look back and say, you know, I spent the last eight hours playing this and I feel like I was just running on a treadmill, right? Like I've gotten slightly better at shooting the specific kind of enemy, but I haven't really done anything or seen anything and, and i think it's a, you know i will say this is from a studio that i think don and i both really like housemark games mm-hmm. um and i will say there's two things i am sort of disappointed about one is that there are other games they usually have put in difficulty modes and this one does mm-hmm. not have that and i think actually would benefit from a lot and part of the reason i think it would benefit and this is my second point it seems like it has a great story mm-hmm. from people that have beat it it seems like it's an interesting story i have yet to go spoil myself on it at some point i probably will if i'm not going to continue playing it uh but i've still committed to maybe going back to it but like it's so drip fed that who knows if i'll ever see the whole thing right and that's not even counting the fact that it apparently has not only a regular ending but also a secret ending that requires like a post-game grind uh which is a whole different thing so one of the reasons I wanted to make Don talk about the thing he didn't put on the list is because it's a time (laughs) loop game. And one of the games Nate has on his list is a time loop game that has an entirely different feel to it. I think we could probably agree.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think, you guys even talked about Outer Wilds, maybe even on a different episode. of. I think Don brought it up at one yeah, point. Yeah, right? I, I did. I, so I'm not going to make us rehash all that again. I just finally got around to playing it. Um, and it's reminded me, the first couple sort of runs through the cycle because I'm going to try not to spoil other stuff about the game, but you do die and then come back. Uh, like in almost every other video game ever in some way if you think about it. <laughs> Minus the game where you die and it deletes itself.
1: You know <laughs> where like, uh... you die. I'm gonna find one. I'm there gonna... is one. There yeah, is w- actually one. W- w-
0: which one do you know, Christian?
1: Uh well there's the Jason Roar game. Um the name of which I'm not remembering at the moment. Okay. Uh,
0: I won't put you on the spot on on a hot mic, but let's see if we can find that. I want to do that. Um, but, <laughs> but you do, there's this loop in Outer Wilds And you you die and you come back And I do now understand what you guys meant When you said that it is really hard To talk about Outer Wilds without spoiling anything Because the whole point is exploration and discovery But I would say, you know, I haven't played Returnal And I probably won't um, In Outer Wilds though, you do I do at least really get a strong sense of accomplishment. Like I do not get tired of the loops Mm. at all because there's some, there's always something new to find, you know, the whole point is that you, you loop just far enough to find some interesting thing. And then, you know, that that thing is still going to be there and going to do what it did. And so then you, get to go and explore some other thing. And there's so much space, man. I just, I have, I have so much space. I don't know. I've, I've completely understood the hype about this game. I realize I'm a little bit late to the party on it. Um, and it, it, it has reminded me because um, I'm not very good at video games. Uh, it took me a really long time to land. Like my first couple, it, it, the the physics, of the, the rockets in your spaceship and of your space suit are so ruthless in in some way. La- I mean, Music you get the hang of cruel it. Cruel mistress, yes. <laughs> you get the <laughs> hang of it, eventually you do. But it took me a while to get the hang of it, which is not a complaint, is just something that if there's anyone else out there who hasn't gotten into this game uh, before me uh, might do to keep in mind, because thinking in three dimensions, the way the game asks you to think in three dimensions was definitely something that I had to practice quite a bit.
1: I mean, this is a game that, you know, this is a game that started off as a student-made game. Yeah, as like a thesis project, uh, you know, then picked up awards like uh, for best independent game. Uh, and then, you know, got picked up by Annapurna Interactive as their publisher Um And you can tell that, like, to some degree, it's like a physics simulator, right? It's using Unity Engine, but they definitely built their own simulation, like, physics simulation model into it. And so you have that, like, funness of the, like, not quite Fall Guys level physics simulation, you know, or I mean more than Fall <laughs> Guys level, but there's sort of pleasures. But there's something there like with the wonky l- jumping as well, like the weird, you know, yeah. hold down to and then release the jump and the landing. There's a kind of comedy and humor in there that I don't think the game uh, avoids. Like it sort of leans into that humor at various Oh points. yeah, there have mm. definitely
0: been many times where I'm like, but I'm so close and I just keep bonking my head and it makes a little noise when you bonk your head. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> it's it,
2: There's a lot of comedic potential uh, in, in outer wilds. Um, and it's, and usually it's on the player, right? The, the comedy is there in your interactions with, with gravity. Um, and uh, the, well, not just the the player's interaction, but the whole solar system and, and the way that it's put together. There's just so much uh, possibility for, your, you know, your ship to almost skid, but then it turns out there's, you know, it's a patch of ice or something like that. Or, right. And you eat, right. were going to land and you had the speed just right if the velocity was landing on sand, but it's not. And yeah. so... Shoo, and then you're spinning off into space.
0: (laughs) And you do, but the thing is the game also plays with a lot of things that I am genuinely afraid of. Like Mm. I I do really experience some sense of, I don't know if agoraphobia is the right word, but being in space and like, oh God, like, oh no, I'm alone in space with a limited supply of oxygen. And this actually, this specifically happened yesterday. I finally managed to land on this thing that was orbiting the, this planet that I've been trying to land on this little thing. Um, mm. And I landed on it, I got out and I got inside and there was a bunch of really cool shit that I can't talk about because I was going to spoil stuff in the game. Um, but then I looked up and there's a little thing that, that helps you keep track of how far away your ship is from you. And my ship had continued (laughs) to orbit the planet on its own trajectory separate from me. And So I was in this satellite and my ship had become a totally different satellite, just just flying around on its own. And then I was going to have to try to like launch out and catch it and then I died anyway. But um, it was really... (laughs) Minor
1: spoiler is for N.K. Jemisin's
0: The Broken
1: Earth Trilogy. Uh, But a lot (laughs) of that trilogy revolves around uh, satellites, uh, the moon, uh, and people not knowing what a moon or a satellite is. Uh, So there's some kind of crossover waiting to happen between Outer Wilds and The Broken Earth. Oh, there
0: definitely is. Um, There definitely is somewhere out there that's in the... um, in the cosmology uh but it it is it is everything that people have said it was i mean it's a it's a compelling story that reveals itself just slow enough to keep my interest and the sense of exploration which is probably my favorite thing about video games is really strong and i feel like there's still a whole bunch more to find that i haven't found yet and um yeah, I, I'm I'm really genuinely enjoying it, and I understand why so many people did. Also, I think that the soundtrack and the way it incorporates music is very very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this there are these really cool little moments where if you're paying close attention, the the soundtrack itself does these cool little stereo um, tricks where something will be playing in one ear and then switch really quickly over into the other ear. And it'll be right around the time when you're wandering past something that might be significant. It is it is a really, um, uh, a neat multi-sensory experience too, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Cause
1: this is a first game from a studio that eventually become, you know, Mobius Digital. Uh, and, you know, I think winning, an independent game award like gave them the ability to probably put some polish on this in a way yeah, that maybe a lot of indie studio indie studios just don't have that luxury necessarily. Um, but it's actually not a small game in a lot of ways. It's not a huge yeah. game. It's not you know this isn't like an Ubisoft open world or something like that or a Breath of the Wild. But it's not a small or a particularly small space. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of detail. It's not you know making a graphics card chug because it's a pretty kind of simplistic but i think you know very nicely
0: stylized that's, 3d that's art why style. i'm playing it that's why I'm playing it. That's why I picked it to play when we wanted to write about space games
1: in between Nate emulating PS1 games on his computer or something.
0: <laughs> oh, beautiful. Literally, you're the Haunted PS1 demo disc is something I'll talk about a different time. But yes. Yeah.
1: Nate's just playing the second Grand Theft Auto over and over <laughs> when it was still top
2: down. And Nate, oh, I, I hope you're also on Haunted PS1 Discord as
0: I am. It's it's a
2: uh, it's been wild
0: watching them blow Up. yeah it's crazy i mean it's felt like it's this little niche thing that it's almost like oh crap i mean this is so so bad it's so bad but like metaphorically the metaphor i'm gonna the analogy not metaphor the analogy i'm gonna draw is so bad but i was one of the first of my friends to listen to okay computer and every, and, and, you know, and then it, you, you know, you're that guy when you're the guy who's judging other people who weren't there before you, but um it is really interesting. And to see how this, um this project, this community has almost become a meme of its own in with the, I mean, it's brilliant. It's a really cool idea. I'm glad it's popular, but.
1: For younger listeners, OK Computer is an album uh, by the extremely innovative band No Doubt. You may know No Doubt from uh, Gwen Stefani as the, as the lead starting point of Gwen Stefani uh, in her okay. very popular music career. Oh, uh, amazing, ska album, okay Computer.
2: <laughs> amazing ska album. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the last
1: I think Fred was Durst Scott. was on it too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh limp buzz kit uh yes oh boy um before we continue being a 90s music podcast uh i'm yeah, gonna so, return
2: to that if we have time yeah no we,
1: we should we should we can bring in our non-game recommendations i want to talk more about like polish in part because i feel like it's funny so one of the games that i've been playing and I'm, i wrote up some impressions that'll probably go up tomorrow uh is the game Biomutant by Experimental or Experiment 101? It's their first game. Uh, although they've got like some chops behind them, these are pretty seasoned developers that I think are part of the team. It's a relatively small team, uh, like 20 to 25 people. This is a big open world game, maybe not on the scale of like an Assassin's Creed Odyssey, but probably on the scale of like an Assassin's Creed Revelations or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not small. Um, For
2: our younger listeners, Assassin's Creed Revelations. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's the start of Blake Shelton's country career yeah the revelations of going. course pertains to the biblical reference uh, as we all know he's a
0: god-fearing man it's actually where breath of the wild got its towers uh more or less uh and where every other game where you die when you touch water <laughs> started oh my god um but
1: I mean, Biomedians, I said I say this is my impressions. It's a mess, and it's a mess in a great way and a bad way at the same time. It's like a Saturday morning cartoon. It's got like you know, sort of *Legend of Korra* or uh, *Airbender* vibes going on, but also uh, you know, I think I compared it to *Captain Planet*, which was this great you know '80s cartoon featuring a blue guy that saves the planet with the help of some uh teenagers each of whom has like different environmental powers or something like that it's been a long time uh but the point being it's kind of zany it's kind of cartoonish i think that was good for them to lean into that because it gives it kind of like a wacky style it's also got a like honestly kind of overbearing narrator that sounds like he should be narrating like a david adam like narrating mm. like a nature documentary and it sometimes works but often doesn't because it's a little bit too much Uh, they're actually Mm -hmm. releasing a patch and that's one of the things they're doing is dialing it back especially towards the beginning of the game because it's I've never played a game that's so overly tutorialized as this game (laughs) um, so that it makes the first like six hours feel like tutorial Uh, but this is a game that has a ton of systems that's clearly inviting comparison to an Assassin's Creed or really a Breath of the Wild Uh, but it's also made by like 20 something developers and it's janky, right? It's janky in a lot of different ways. And I kind of like some of the jank to be quite honest. And one of the things I mentioned in this impressions piece that thanks Don, for helping me uh, edit, or no, this was Roger that helped me edit that one. You helped me with the Mass Effect piece, that's right. Um, Which is that like, this is one of those weird situations where the jank is part of the pleasure as well as the pain. And I think they're Mm. kind of inextricable where Mm -hmm. I don't think you would get some of the pleasures if they didn't swing for the fences and put, honestly, just too many systems. There's a crafting system. There's a magic system. There's a, you know, you can craft unique guns as if, like, Borderlands uh, had, like, Skyrim-style crafting or something. Uh, You can... uh, Upgrade all kinds of different traits. Uh, there is a system in which you create your character and yeah, endow it with specific producer who can say no. No, wow. I mean there is. <laughs> this is overscoped after the max, right? <laughs> but there's something I love about it because it doesn't hang together, right? And and it, you know, this isn't to say it doesn't deserve some of the six point fives that it's being regular <laughs> getting in reviews. I think that's sort of like the average it's been getting. I think that's probably the right score. Uh, maybe I would give it a seven because I appreciate some of the jank a little bit more than folks. But what was interesting to me was that I think it was a real litmus test for a lot of major games journalism outlets in terms of what they, not necessarily what they always look for, but what they feel like they have to look for. Like mm. what they feel like they have to do as if there were some kind of like super ego or some kind of like, you know, uh, little sort of, you know, surveillance device sitting over their shoulder that represents gamers as a whole, uh, that's telling them that if they like this game too much, uh, they'll get in trouble, right? Um, And because of the polish, because of the lack of polish, right? Because this is a game that may or may not be better in a year from now, right? And it does seem like they're committed to patching it, thqs are publisher and i think they're supporting the studio after launch and so i think that you know they've committed to you know doing things like it has a kind of vaguely devil may cry kind of combat but without the fine tuning that you absolutely need from a combat (laughs) system that mixes melee and gunplay uh and combo systems uh it doesn't have the animation timing quite down. It doesn't have that combat feel that it needs. So maybe that'll get, but there's something I love about this game and I'm not going to beat it. I don't think, I don't think I will finish this game because I'm guessing it's just too big, you know, and I regularly beat long games, but I have other, I'm playing through the Mass Effect trilogy right now, which a game is a game that's very polished for its time. Right. I also recently beat Uncharted 2 for the first time. Again, a game that even 12 years later shows its polish, right? Just in the camera work, just in the fact that the camera almost always is doing the right thing, uh, the third person camera. And so I guess what I want to bring up is, you know, how do folks feel about that nebulous category of the double A game, which is how we would probably classify Biomutant and how it would classify another game I happen to be playing right now uh, that I literally started playing last night. Uh, Warhammer, Necromunda, uh, let me get the full title right. Gun for Hire, I believe it's the sub subtitle. I didn't Warhammer. know that
2: sub subtitle.
1: Yeah, That's I think name. actually it might just be Necromunda, Gun for Hire. But as far as I'm concerned, it's Warhammer, 40k, Necromunda, Gun for a That's right. Which is like an amazing... Actually, honestly, I would tell people to go pick up this. I think you can get it for 30 bucks. I think. Like, it's crazy. This is a game with wall running, a grappling hook that can grapple anywhere. Into Ooh, you sold me a grappling hook.
2: That a was double it. double
1: jump That's from all I the need. outset. And like... Kind of like randomized weapons and like a little bit Diablo style. And from what I understand, a 12-hour campaign. Nice. Yeah. With underground like cathedrals that are miles high in a second level that's set on a train. But it is double A. It is janky. You can get caught in a wall.
0: But it's amazing. So yeah, double Anything the folks. Is is double A relative to Jank then? Cause like I don't really even want to talk about this game anymore. And it seems to keep coming back like a bad penny. But like Cyberpunk, that was supposed to be a triple well, A game. And the way we some. know <laughs> the no, the way we know that it was a triple A game is because of the way people reacted to the amount of jank that it had to a certain degree. I mean, obviously there are other I'm 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 exaggerating, but like, is jank is is glitch an aspect of a sort of this double A thing that you're reach, reaching for? Because the place that I experience the most jank is in games that were triple a when they came out 15 or 20 years ago (laughs) because most of the games they actually play but what what are those games now you know as people are still playing them what are they maybe they're double a now so i mean i think it is a
1: category that has to do with production so i think you can like i I think we've talked about this before but i think you can like date triple a to like the late 90s early 2000s to a certain degree and uh kind of like a beginning of an expansion of studio size that's continued right Hmm. cyberpunk had something like 800 people working on it at various points um and arguably more if you talk about various outsourcing for things like textures um and some sound work and things like that and uh i think one of the ways that you can also note what happens with the AAA game, which is this is where it gets a little blurry with BioMuted, I would say, is marketing budget. Mm-hmm. And part of the, and I think this is what you were talking about, part of the problem with Cyberpunk was how early they started marketing it, how much they started marketing it, that kind of like horrible feedback loop that. Got started up between sites like IGN, frankly, right? Um, Game Informer. Sites that to some degree I like aspects of, to be honest. I like Game Informer. Um, but you know, these are like there's a feedback relationship between these PR departments, and they spent millions of dollars on marketing now, right?
2: Cyberpunk probably spent at least five million dollars on marketing. It had an ad at my closest bus stop. Yeah. Which, go, which right? hilariously to me, before the game actually came out and disappointed so many of its uh, would-be eager fans, someone smashed the glass on the advertising hoarding container and stole one of the, the posters. It's a two-sided <laughs> thing, uh, which was rapidly replaced and, you know... Uh, Amazingly, I I actually can't believe that the city of Los Angeles actually replaced the glass on this bus stop. I I guess they thought that this was, you know, maybe they were actually getting paid uh, to do so by (laughs) CD Projekt Red. Who knows? Um, Unlikely in any event how quickly it was replaced. And I, I couldn't help but think the week that the game came out and... Um, experienced all kinds of difficulties playing, was delisted from multiple stores. I, I don't think it's, it's still reappeared delisted from on, PlayStation. That's right. Uh, in fact, it,
1: profits are down 66% in their last quarter.
2: Right. I mean, this is a huge studio, and other major corporations are refusing to sell the product because of its lack of consumer quality control and things like that. And on the one hand, that's fascinating to me from that corporate perspective and you know the the game business perspective and on the other hand all i can think of is whoever stole that cyberpunk poster (laughs) did they did they steal it thinking like oh yeah i've got this this awesome piece of advertising for this awesome game that i'm so hyped up for and like they play it a week later and they're like i i risked felony property damage for for this I hope it's hanging above their bed and I hope it has Keanu Reeves on it
1: because I'm still convinced of the best moment of the game. And I played this and actually enjoyed it reasonably well. Um, It's not a great game, but I I had my fun with it, I suppose. Um, But I still think the best moment is that Keanu Reeves at E3, you know, that you're beautiful. No, you are. Um, That's still the best moment of the game. And it's not even part of the game.
0: Well, (laughs) what happened is though that I'm sure it was a real relief for Don is now Don can get on the bus without having his pants fall down and his arms pop out like Jesus.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is, you know, and, and it's true. Uh, if, if I remember correctly from the tabletop setting, having not played the video game adaptation, Night City is supposed to exist right up the coast. Uh, some, you know, mm-hmm future corporate dystopian billionaire uh you know somewhere in the central californian coast uh maybe you know north of, maybe north santa barbara south of san luis obispo a beautiful spot is like let me build this trash metropolis that's you know super threatening and orientalist uh and you know so all i'm saying is night city is very local (laughs) (laughs) and you're right that that's a personal concern i'm worried about living in night city Nate, and what might happen to me i think that's fair
0: i have i have a real question though that that you that reminds me of don which is tabletops i'm not going to get into like what constitutes it is blades in the dark a double a tabletop i would say it's got enough players it probably isn't it's probably bigger than that although anyway um Warhammer 40K the video game might have some of these double A aspects that you're looking at well Warhammer, Warhammer games the are franchise the double A <laughs> yeah but i mean that's like i'm i'm just saying if we're trying to draw I don't think it's applicable outside
1: of video games i don't think it's applicable outside of video games i don't think it applies to tabletop games and i think, think financially so? you could see so there are extra zeros at the end of all of these budgets compared to any tabletop game even ones coming out of wizard of the coast
0: yeah yeah right? like, I, I mean...
1: honestly like the just like the budget isn't even comparable the sheer number of people like wizard of the coast is still a smallish company when you look at the actual internal like employee numbers compared to even like a cd project red at this yeah. point like it's just it's just, there's a scale difference and, and like part of me was going to say like i i was almost tempted to say something like Oh, you know what the difference between a AAA game and like a double-a game the tightness of the feedback loop between marketing and production because the problem mm. with cd project red is that they were making a game while thinking about the marketing at a certain point And there's a whole mm. discourse there's a whole thing we could talk about the fact that they went like shortly before starting production on this they actually went um you know open on the big you know, did an IPO on the stock market, right? Like they became a publicly traded company. And that also, I think, affected things. Um, but I actually don't think that quite makes sense as an argument because actually, indie games, like small indie games, are very often in conversation with their marketing in a very tight way. Like I was reading about how Twin Motion, the like socialist studio uh, that made Dead Cells, uh, was very much in conversation with their marketing as they were in early access. Um, they had an American marketing guy, they're a French company, um, and they like directly took feedback from marketing. Uh, so it's, it's not marketing in and of itself, but there are some kind of like norms or standards that marketing and development sort of like come to that counts as like, this is AAA, and this is what quadruple A would mean, like with this new perfect dark game that's being made um and that's not only does that make certain kinds of aspirations occur that have to do with like 3d rendering technologies that can often you know result in crunch but also means certain kinds of things get left out in the name of polish right like Mm things hit the chopping floor. And sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes that's great. Like sometimes that means you don't overscope or even if you do overscope as often happens with these games, you still cut it and you af- you can afford to leave $10 million worth of production time on the cutting room floor, right? Um, as probably happened with like Last of Us Part Two, for example. Um, uh, but yeah, there's something about like a game like Necromunda, Gun for Hire, where you could tell they didn't chop stuff or Biomute it, where you can tell they didn't chop stuff. They made everything work or not work and they left it all in and they let it all hang
2: out. And I kind of love them for that. I do like albums like that, right? As, as mm. a parallel, right? So um, a, a good example of this is my favorite Clash album, which is... Uh, simultaneously, a Clash album that becomes derided by fans of The Clash. I love The Clash's Sandinista. I love it. Um, it's, for younger I'm folks, a The face. Clash is a band
1: composed <laughs> of the Ramones, um, I believe, actually. They, I think they're known for having opposite political positions. But. <laughs> right, Joey
0: Ramone is the drummer for The Clash. In fact, he clashes a big <laughs> pair of cymbals together. Yeah. The right. Background.
2: And, and they made uh, this uh, album, which is not political, called Sandinista. <laughs> <laughs> the title, again, is Sandinista, but it's not a political album. Um, and the thing that I love most about Sandinista is, Christian, it's, it's exactly what you just said. Um, it's a, a Clash album where they put everything in, every idea that they had, good or bad, And some of the ideas are bad. Like, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and claim that every track on Sandinista is a musical masterpiece and it's the clash at the peak of their abilities or anything like that. No, no, no. Then, you know, go listen to London Calling. That's a very tightly composed album. They worked with a professional producer who had a, you know, try to drag a professional album out of these kids from London. And instead, Sandinista is like, it's all in here. And... I, I love it because it's it's almost like a field recording at times. Um, every mm. idea that Joe Strummer and Mick Jones had where they would like go to a party in Brixton and hear like a Calypso beat. They were like, we should cut a track with the Calypso beat now. And they did, and it's in the album. Is it good? Is it bad? Eh. You know, I, I'm not gonna say that somebody got murdered or Let's Go Crazy are the, again, the height of, of the band. But it's really cool to hear the sounds of London at the time as filtered through the band, uh, relatively unfiltered, and it, it's it's an end, and I I never get tired of listening to it. I've listened to Sandinista for twenty years, uh, fairly continuously, and I I just don't get tired of it because it's just it's all in there.
1: It strikes me that they're like, you know, it's funny because I think studios can do this in different ways. There's like a maximalist way of doing this. Like it's all in their sort of ethos, which you see from like a bio mutant and there's like a Necromunda gun for hire, or for that matter, I think a lot of might and delights like larger games or something like that would probably fall into that category of like a little bit larger team. Uh, and It's not like they're overscoped. They probably have a better sort of production schedule because they're making, you know, more games basically. Uh, And, but at the same time, you get that sense of some like rough edges, some things that are in there that don't necessarily absolutely have to be in there, but like they're in there because it's an interesting idea and it might work or it might not work. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe that's a way of putting it like it's, It's great that Biomutant Studio, like their name is Experiment 101, right? Hmm. Like there's something about that name. It's like a 101 (laughs) course and an experiment, right? And like they knew they had to know some of the shit was going to like not work. Some of it was just going to be like (laughs) not received well or some folks were going to like some aspects and not like other aspects. Like the best thing in the game is just exploring the world and like finding like nuclear waste power plants. So the premise of this game is that like, You were all are like the walking folks in this are these like furry creatures, these anthropomorphic animals that also seem to mostly, know, Kung Fu and, but they're also living on an earth that used to be inhabited by humans and that clearly humans messed up the environment so bad that they just died off. And so there are moments where you're like cleaning up after humans and like figuring out ways to like go dumpster diving at nuclear power plants. Um, And so it's got something to it. It's got something charming to it, I guess, in letting those, you know, things just hang out. I compared it to, like, a radioactive, you know, like an irradiated animal that crawls out of, like, a polluted river, like, with one too many limbs or, like, the (laughs) three-eyed fish from The Simpsons or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. This is what I've been thinking about is whether or not that category is a useful category, whether it's more... I think, like, it has some real there's a real distinction in terms of just like different scales of production, but I've also just been thinking about like the kinds of standards we use in games journalism and our sites, like gamers with Classes. you know, sit somewhere between like games journalism and games scholarship. That's sort of like our mission is, you know, kind of to bridge that gap in a way. Um, but we don't, Feel like we have to pump out a review for everything and we couldn't even if we wanted to Um, i was gonna say (laughs) we don't feel like we have to but you know (laughs) in the rarefied academic atmosphere which we (laughs) So we're not too
0: concerned about uh, pumping out a review of every little piece of flim flam that comes from ubisoft's (laughs) desk oh man
1: (laughs) um no we all have day jobs and aren't making any money off of this
0: yet folks uh yeah. so and some of like us aren't making anything any, some of us aren't making any money off our day jobs either because <laughs> some yeah. of us are in graduate school <laughs> oh, graduate school, Nate. oh uh, i brought it up I brought it up. Yeah, but it's uh hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, Christian. You just the way Don't you said that. that was funny. But oh. you were trying to make you know, a point and
2: I we're sitting here talking about labor exploitation and games. But let's not forget those of us who are exploited by academia while we do so.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, let's not. I mean, we you know let's just all get together and I don't know. I think I, I think I used the phrase animal crossing Molotovs on wall street in one of my last pieces. And that just, you know, I don't know. I think that would be a nice game. Um, little anthropomorphic beaver. Uh, (laughs) but i, I think the crafting coffee. ingredients you have the fairy bottle from zelda and, <laughs> yes. <you> know, like... <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> and like a little bandana and i don't know where you oh gasoline from you know you don't see the mario kart cars that ever really gas up but they got to run on something
2: mm-hmm. um star power presumably <laughs> star a renewable power. resource of the mushroom kingdom <laughs>
0: Yes, so I'm sorry, Christian. I know you're trying to get somewhere. Oh no, no. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Nate, you know, podcast without some derailing. If, if I know, if we if we took a normal trajectory uh, to to get anywhere, now the this podcast, is transitional
2: material.
0: <laughs> the podcast has taken the turn. Nothing more interesting than listening to people meta narrative their own podcast, but now mm. we've gone. The The trajectory is shaped like my first few Outer Wilds flights where I was like take off and then immediately flip over upside down and then land. I had one where I genuinely crashed right back down into the starting planet. Oh, sure. And got stuck on the water wheel that is part of the little town in the starting planet. And then my ship was stuck rotating like on the water wheel and I couldn't. Anyway, it was really a disaster. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I wanna I wanna actually
1: like bring this up and like say that like I don't think it's like too it's not an interruption because I think part of what we're talking about, part of what we've talked about a little bit before the podcast are like how do we review or judge games, right? Like how do we evaluate yes. them? How does game journalism do so? Yes. Like for gamers with glasses, we have a relative degree of freedom, and I don't want to pretend like we're in a pure position at all, but we have a relative degree of freedom because we're still like pre-monetized, we're gonna hopefully launch a Patreon in September, but like, even then, you know, we're never gonna have some of the strings attached to us that like say an IGN does or something or a game informer. And I don't even like mean they're like compromised or anything like so crass. They may or may not be. And we can have an argument about that. But I mean more in the sense of like, they they have an obligation to a very large public that, you know, is sort of like constitutes them and they constitute this public, um, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways and our expectations of them of like to define of like this is what a good game is right and as much Mm -hmm. as they might say like oh each review is an opinion and i have my own well opinion about people saying reviews are just opinions uh but as much as they might say that they also like they have a 10 point system or something and there are labor conditions involved with this right there are like all kinds of like these labor conditions and the fact that we're like you know Sort of exploiting ourselves and each other for this website uh that's still <laughs> you know a hobby in a certain way but is also sort of broaching more than a hobby and becoming work um structures some of what we do and one of the things i think that stood out with Biomutant is that like you could see games journalism sort of defining itself as a profession by being able to say like this doesn't make the cut and there, there, it, it must mean something for a game to make the cut and fulfill what it's supposed to fulfill. And I think that that's an interesting expectation. And like how that circulates is tricky, I think, tricky to talk about.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's tricky in, in all kinds of scenarios that I think make various kinds of classification. I mean, not unimportant, but certainly there are different ways to think about them. And it's something that I think about a lot. For example, before this podcast is over, I will talk about the game, if on a winter's night for travelers. You are talking and here. You should just keep talking about it. You, well, I, I will. And, and, and <laughs> but part of what I'm thinking about as I'm playing this beautiful little pixel art point and click sort of adventure that was put together mostly by two people uh, Laura Hunt and Thomas Mooring using brilliantly setting your game in the 1920s so that you can, most of your sound assets will be public domain. Hmm. And so they incorporate a lot of um, sort of uh, ripped uh, vinyl. I, I think they would have been 78 RPM at that time. But, but um recordings into the soundtrack of the game. And they incorporate all kinds of other cool references. It's a really smart um little mystery. Well, I won't sit, call it little, I won't use the diminutive actually because the stories are mostly really sad what I've played so far, but it's this smart mystery kind of thriller where you live through these four different stories and there are there's a character who you know you can look through the books on her shelf and her favorite novel is the first volume from proust and you can listen to the music that she remembers traveling to vienna in 1926 And there's an actual, like, she's got a gramophone downstairs and you can put on music by an actual contemporary composer. Someone put a lot of thought into the historicity of this game. Uh, Mm. There's a really cool part that I'm in right now that's very um, Lovecraft country. One of the stories is about a Black doctor in... Uh, I think he's in New York. I haven't quite caught where precisely we're, we're existing in this world yet. He, and he sort of ends up going through this portal into this kind of nether world where he has to relive his memories and you've got to get through. And the whole, the whole overarching conceit of the narrative is that all these dead people find themselves together on a train at night and they have to go relive their memories and figure out how they died. It's really smart and really carefully crafted. And I haven't actually finished it yet. And there's not a save. So I'm doing the full uh, Super Nintendo right now, where it's actually still running on my computer while we record the podcast. Um, <laughs> and it's you been the running Super about... Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> it's been running. Yes. You know, we leave it on overnight right. in, in a game that didn't have like Anyway, no, I know the exactly point being, what you're about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a smart game and it's a sad game. And I'm hoping that there's some kind of happy ending maybe somehow near the end. But it has mystery and intrigue and narrative and really cool pixel art. And um, it is one of like myriad similar games that I could have picked to talk about on off of itch right itch.io i don't know if it's itch.io or itch.io or what the hell it is and i need to find that out because i'm always talking about it on the podcast out loud but someone tweet at us <laughs> please and tell and tell oh, me on, anyone um, I, I you know
2: i think it's one of those ones where either is acceptable
0: that would be nice i i just i have frequently have the experience of having only read a word and so i say it out loud wrong but but the you, point you is, want me to ask the the like producer behind
2: itch how it's pronounced i can get them on the line
0: if you know that person yes get on your bat phone your itch phone my itch phone get on your itch phone Uh, and find out (laughs) the the point it sounds like a phone that that you can get crabs
2: from or something (laughs) (laughs)
1: You get sorry wait. but wait what's
2: the situation So in the she- 90s it was possible <laughs> to to get on your telephone and dial a number that <laughs> would uh you know have erotic chat on it this is when people still made phone calls yes yeah, they so did they so it, it was uh it was called phone sexting
0: yeah and don did it once and got crabs it was crazy. Oh my god! It was crazy. Uh,
1: you thought the podcast was off the rails before.
0: The point <laughs> is, there's always the question of selection. There's always the question, no matter what tier tier in in quotes of game <laughs> we're talking about. There is always the question, and I'm not going to call it the indie apocalypse because I don't think that's what it really is. There, it's not a bad thing that a lot of people have access to the tools they need to make games. Mm-hmm. But whenever you are writing about games, you are always going to be picking what you talk about and what you don't. And there are always going to be really good things mm-hmm. that you didn't talk about. And it is really interesting to think about what the reasons for that might be. And sometimes those reasons are marketing and sometimes those reasons are jank. And sometimes those reasons are um, simple, you know, failure to know where to look.
1: And that principal selection, I think, is it's a really good point because it does operate mm-hmm. on like the side of production and the side of consumption. Like it operates in reviews, it operates in development. Uh, the game that I, I feel like is sort of analogous um, to, you know, if on a night uh, that I'm playing right now is the Wild at Heart, uh, which. Moonlight Kids made. We're gonna have an impressions piece from uh, Blake Reno in a couple of days. Go up. Oh, cool! Uh, it, nice. It's one of my games of the year, honestly. Already, I'm probably about halfway through it. From what I understand, it's like a five to six hour game. Uh, it, you know, a lot of folks have been comparing it to Pikmin and Luigi's Mansion, which I think is right. It has some of the mechanics from both of those. It's also a very moving story about a child escaping from an abusive household situation. Uh, in it has kind of like Chronicles of Narnia vibes and that he like you know goes into his backyard and ends up in a magical forest sort of situation um, so it's a little bit like walking into a wardrobe. Is there a uh,
0: Jesus lion? Is there, there a is, lion Jesus? There's no
1: Jesus lion. It's a oh, little uh, man. it's a Let's little wackier man. than C.S. Lewis could have uh, I think come up with uh, which I love it for um, <laughs> but it has a lot of moving pieces in a lot of ways right like you do have this Pikmin style creatures you collect that have different abilities and there's different versions of them and puzzles but it feels pretty tight. And, you know, I don't know how many people work on this game on their website. Moonlight Kids say that it's uh, it's an indie development team, a collaborative team spread out across Portland, Atlanta, and Spokane. Mm. Um, and I, I really want to interview some of these folks. So hopefully I'll get in touch with them and have, you know, be able to uh, interview them, maybe yep, like involved with that. But it feels very tight, right? It doesn't feel janky at, at all. In fact, it feels like not only does like not only have my save files not been corrupted, but it even has backup save files that it does automatically, right? Oh, cool. It's got like all of these wonderful mechanics to make a nice smooth process. It's complex, but it's not too complex. So I do think there is like this question of selection and what you're going for. And this is more of like a minimalist sort of design approach, even as the aesthetics are kind of wacky and also Saturday morning cartoonish. Uh, and I think this game should be reviewed by more sites and I think sites are starting to pick it up. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it'll probably review much better than like a bio mutant because it knows it's scoping a little better. It like scope itself a little better. And even if it has a smaller team, it knows exactly how much it could at all. Uh And so there is that question, but there's also just a question of reception and what we want from games. And like, you know, the other thing I kind of wanted to bring up uh, in this episode was the whole, like, you know, the umpteenth time we've had the Ubisoft politics discourse occur, right? Where some person from Ubisoft, in this case, uh, the game director for Far Cry 6, uh, said something along the lines of my game is not trying to make a political statement Uh, a couple sites sort of jumped on that and then he released a blog post where he said i was saying my game is not trying to make a political statement but that's not to say it doesn't have politics in it right he's like i think his wording was something along the lines of i'm not trying to make a simple binary statement about like for and against and on the one hand like Okay, this is Ubisoft doing Ubisoft. Well, the you know maybe you can give Far Cry Two with its kind of like Heart of Darkness narrative a little more credit. Um, Clint Locking, uh being a game designer there who most recently did uh, Watchdogs Legion, which is sort of interesting in a way. Um, and you know, on the other hand, it's like okay, like you don't want to own it. And then on the other other hand, I'm sort of bored by. Games Journalism saying, but what's your political statement? Mm. As if like a game made by several hundred people, even if it does have interesting politics, could have something like a unified political message, as if that weren't some kind of category mistake, or for that matter, as if like a quote unquote political message, and I'm sorry to say this, but like, as if that weren't the thing that like, if you're taking a college literature course, that's the thing you start at right? A quote unquote message in a story. And that you try to like move past because a message, like a unified, simple message is not what you're getting out of an interesting work of literature or an interesting game. Usually. I don't know. Do folks care about this at all? Is this like, like this discourse is like back and forth, this tango, as it were, this dance between games, journalism, and big studios like Ubisoft where they go, it's not political. And they go, it is political. And then they go, well, I guess it's political, but it's not simplistically political, which means we won't take a
2: specific stand. I don't know. I, I have a feeling that you are not the only person who is weary of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as a result, I feel like the, this latest Flash in the pan with this latest far cry was very easily identifiable even by those who really live for the discourse of the day around video games as a retread it felt like a rerun in much the same way where any far cry game after two has felt like a rerun um it's the same game blood dragon well, Blood Dragon is its own special category courtesy of Power Glove. It's because of the soundtrack, really. I mean, they made the game because the soundtrack existed first. Soundtrack And, and to first.
1: give credit where credit is due, the game director of this new Far Cry is the game director for Blood Dragon and has not done a Far Cry since. Hmm.
2: Well, well that's so great. hopefully it has know. a good soundtrack then. Uh, but, <laughs> but in general, yeah, I, I think that people saw this They saw the statement, we all had a good chuckle at how this was Ubisoft's 30th time their PR has put out a game like Watch Dogs, like Far Cry, like Assassin's Creed, and said, oh no, despite the obvious and overt political symbolism that we're using inside of this game to give it any flavor at all, uh, despite that, this is not a, a political work, which of course predictably has everyone you know more or less point out the obvious which is you're using political symbolism in your game in in five it was the symbolism of white supremacist theology in montana uh pretty hard to avoid that and and say that there's no politics in your game similarly six it's set in cuba uh and and cuba in a somewhat revolutionary moment i might add um given that far cry games after two it's tend not to setting do that. cuba it's a oh, country no. that looks a lot like cuba has certain oh, traditions oh, in geez. common but yes thank thank you um it, it's important to be precise where ubisoft You're ubisoft can i have my check now please <laughs> <laughs> but but i mean Part of, I think, my frustration with Ubisoft in particular for instigating this discussion and its accompanying press cycle over and over again is, is its imprecision. The studio uses the, the symbolism of politics indiscriminately in the games that they make. They're fine with it they like to pick uh, up these things like Tinker toys and put them together and make sandboxes for, you know, things where players can blow things up and hang glide, Um, which, you know, Hey, blowing things up and hang gliding in video games is fun. Doing so in tropical settings is fun. Okay. Uh, But I don't think that there is anything more there, right? Mm -hmm. To sustain any kind of discourse about games and politics and have that anchored in far cry or ubisoft's other output is you know like holding a bologna sandwich and debating its culinary merit right like a bologna sandwich could be good or bad but complicated it ain't
1: yeah i mean i guess this is where this is i mean this is where it's a problem of like almost category mistakes right because on the one hand far cry is incredibly complicated the reason i like the far cry games are because of emergent mechanics that remind me of like the best immersive sims on the other hand right you're not going to accuse these games of having really complex narratives or stories right and and if and if you know if that's what you want to do that's fine and if like you can get something out of it that's great but i think you're right there which is this is also a problem of like kind of scale, because you're gonna have like all these artists that are making these textures and making these, uh, you know, the symbolism, this visual symbolism, and they're not gonna all have the same politics, frankly, right? And they're not gonna be thinking half the time about what's the political message to sense, even if they're doing research about like uniforms that might've been worn during the revolution in Cuba, right? Like they kind of like ad hoc uniforms mostly there weren't uniforms worn to be honest in a lot of parts of the revolution because that wasn't a big like point of interest right turns out you don't need uniforms when you're hiding <laughs> uh in the forest uh trying to jump out and surprise larger military forces um
2: go figure
1: go figure uh <laughs> but it's funny because there is like there is a problem that i think you're getting at the thing about Ubisoft is sometimes they seem like they wanna have their cake and eat it too, right? They mm-hmm. want like the credit for getting in the polls. This is where like, you know, you're not gonna get mad at Nintendo's Breath of the Wild for not having a specific explicit political statement because they don't try to get credit for doing so. Which isn't to say the game doesn't have politics. Although I'm also sort of sick of like people throwing out that everything is political without stopping to talk about what that might mean. You know, as this is a statement that probably comes from a very specific moment of feminist politics from the 60s and 70s, um, mm-hmm. and then sort of expands from there. Um, but but Uli Soft wants their cake and wants to eat it too. They want like the credit of dealing with politics without the, the risk of dealing with
2: politics. They would love for people to treat their games as though they simultaneously had some kind of serious engagement or substance while also being the sandboxes that they are. Yeah. Uh, but, but to use another perhaps oversimplifying metaphor, I don't go down to the local playground, look at the sandbox and think, yes, they're, they're, this is a great reflection of all kinds of, of societal forces. Is it? Yes, it's public infrastructure and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can dig as deep into, into public sandboxes as anything else. Uh, <laughs> just as you could dig into ludic and narrative things inside of Ubisoft's games and the amount of labor and production that went into them and everything else. But I, I on another level, I just don't think that the substance is there. And I, I think that uh, it's just so much window dressing, right? Yeah. It's maybe maybe a better metaphor than the sandbox is, um, it's like the kid who shows up with like, the a brand new Tonka dump truck to the sandbox. And is like, this is the greatest toy to play with in the sandbox. I have this huge, wonderful toy. And everyone else has like shovels or something. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's cool. But also, that's it. Right, like also we're still just digging in a sandbox and that let's just have fun with with that part because there isn't a whole lot else that needs to go on here. But this is where I get frustrated, I think, I guess
1: with like the, and and I do not want to blame specific outlets because I think it's actually like a condition that these outlets are dealing with, but like the way in which games journalism does something like, okay, let's condemn Ubisoft again for not having enough politics or for not making a specific political statement uh, and then Ubisoft says something and then maybe they get criticized for it by certain sites like, you know, Vice Games will give something like a much better probably take on Far Cry than say IG Well, to be really blunt about it. Um, Vice Games, i.e. Waypoint. Uh, you know, you're going to get probably an interesting review from them. Uh, but at the same time, right, if you wanted to have an interesting discussion of the politics of Far Cry, you would probably do so not by like talking about you know far cry for like 20 pages you talk about like the history of like sandbox games right and you'd like weave it through grand theft auto and you talk about where cyberpunk tried to do something and failed to do something and you do different things like that but that's not necessarily going to produce the same kind of clicks uh as just saying far cry is you know game director says it's not political
2: I feel like my own sense of weariness here is also mirrored by other game critics um, who engage with the politics of games, specifically the colonial politics of many video games. So your are Dio Lucina's and uh, Kazuma Hashimoto's of the world, yeah. right? And to a certain extent, both of those writers have written uh, a, a range, a wealth of very good thoroughly critical pieces on a range of games that have come yeah. out in the last five to ten years but at this point what you're more likely to hear from either one of them is the equivalent of the simpsons bus driver don't make me tap the sign again yet another piece about this
1: and this is worth saying we're like we're, we have two distinct things we're talking about, which is one, I think there are a lot of great sites and I want to shout out like Bullet Points, you know, that does these great forums um, that do often deal with like colonial mm-hmm. politics of something like Far Cry or like the sort of Orientalism of cyberpunk. Uh, and then on the other hand, we're dealing with like the IGNs, even the polygons and Kotaku's frankly, right? Like, which I feel like get stuck in a loop that to be honest at this point is as much dictated By the PR of these game companies as it is by any kind of critical thought and I guess what I want to see is like these super smart people sort of break out of that loop or often like people that I think do have a kind of critical acumen that I feel like sometimes just gets wasted because they're doing the interview and of course you know they're going to come up with something from the interview and they're thinking about what's going to blow up and fair enough like you know these people got to make a living like you know and if that's what it takes, then maybe that's what it takes and better that than like, you know, not thinking at all about the politics of a Far Cry, I suppose. Um, I guess like, yeah, this is, this is also where maybe there's this junction between like, again, like academic scholarship and games journalism, right? And things that as academics, like sometimes you get to take for granted and be like, of course, everything's political. But what do you mean when you say everything's political? Because that's the question I'm interested in, right? um where as you know if you're on kotaku if you're on polygon you have to start arguing that point in the first place and you can't take it as a given right and even if you assert it at all you're going to have people yelling at you and you know twitter or something
2: well
0: oh, yeah can get I ugly just, about this. let me just though put in a little plug for players though like for people never who- heard of them Exactly, like that's what I've kind of been feeling. This whole are conversation. Are players gamers or
2: hardcore gamers? I hope the hardcore. <laughs> the harder, Are, are the, did, they, did they? Did they? Do they
1: do the get good? Um... Oh my god, Disco Elysium. Hardcore.
0: Hardcore. Okay, for the Disco but, Elysium fans out there. Thank you. Um, that'll be some some good Patreon content. We'll have Christian redoing the voices. From uh, I don't even know I haven't played the game. You remember um, in 2017, the alt right was pissing its pants over Wolfenstein: The New Colossus. Yeah, yeah, and that was hilarious, and I loved it. Um, but just the whole and, and and also like was really frustrated the idea that it's like uh, controversial to be this like run run and blow up nazis game um this is when we were debating whether or
1: not punching a nazi was legitimate except yeah yeah and by we exactly. i mean oh my god
0: why? exactly you remember but it is important not to forget these things um <laughs> but like people people approach games with expectations and to be honest with you I certainly do sometimes approach a game and I just think I need a break. Like and and to a degree, this is because I, as as several of us on the site, do I have this ridiculous job where I have no choice but to think about this bullshit all day. I mean that that's all day long. That's all there is. And so I often approach games like, oh, please. Like, just can I please have a couple minutes that aren't saturated with cultural criticism? Like, I would play, man, Tetris. I would just love like fifteen minutes of of of. Quiet oh man, I've Tetris. got bad
2: news about the the treatment of international copyright and, yeah, uh, and the, the creator USSR, of Tetris. I, yeah. I'm so
0: sorry. Yeah, you know what, Don. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but you, you see what I mean? It's like the perspective of people are who are have no intention of writing about the game, who just want to play, who, who just intend to play the game. I think that the people who are writing about the game are beholden to in, in a lot of ways is all I'm trying to say. And that there are a lot of people and hopefully raising the nasty specter of the all right doesn't mean that I think that it's all of these people, but there are a lot of Regular everyday people, um for whom saying a game is political is gonna mean something very specific, as you were pointing to Christian. What does that mean? There are people for whom that's gonna mean this won't be relaxing. I think that's a great point. Mm. right. And
1: I think that's a great, I mean because I I think there's a way that sometimes that gets bracketed off in the name of like, we're doing serious criticism. So, therefore, we have to pretend like that isn't part of what people go to games to, right? Like, and then on the other hand, there's like other instances where people maybe lean on that too heavily. But yeah. it is, right? Like, there, and there are moments where I just like when I want to relax. Like, I go play, uh, well, Necromunda, Gun for Hire, or I play Doom or Doom Eternal, or I play, like, shooters, honestly. Like, first-person shooters are really relaxing for me, even if I'm not great at them, to be quite honest. Um, There's something about, like, the level of immersion, of flow, of, like... You know, when I get a few headshots in a row that feels (laughs) really, really good and takes me away from worry in a way that honestly, like when I was playing Disco Elysium, replaying it today, uh, like there was a moment where I'm playing as like a neoliberal scumbag this time around. The last Uh. time I played as like a communist like person, now I'm playing as a neoliberal art critic and I'm trying to like, you know, buy art right now as a like tax shelter or something. but there was a moment where I like found myself thinking about my literal finances uh, mm-hmm. and like my like older daughter's like student financial aid and things like that and when's that due and you know because college is expensive. Um, and I started thinking about like the expenses of the daycare which we're going to start having in August at the same time as we're paying for our older daughter's college. Oh, we boy. You know have a two-year-old and a 19-year-old. Don't ask. That's not relaxing. Disco Elysium is not relaxing. I love the game. It's one of my favorite games in, like, 15 years, honestly, right? It brings me back to playing Planescape Torment when it came out. But I think you're right. Like, if I say it's a political game, like, there is a certain way in which that does have a meaning, right? This isn't a game you're going to relax or, like, bracket off certain things or, like, pretend like certain things don't exist while you're playing it. It's going to... Force you to think about them. And I guess that's one of the questions with Far Cry, like Far Cry does have the ability to be that relaxing game. It also has the potential, and I think maybe this is what people get frustrated with. It has the potential to also do something else.
2: Hmm. To me, having played uh, no Far Cry since three, um, looking at four and five at least, I I think it's fair to say that I would not have a relaxing time for that reason. Um, especially with five, the aforementioned, uh, you know, real Christian religious cult, Montana dictatorship sim that it it appears to be. Um, and part of what would be frustrating. in It isn't so much that the game, uh, has the surface impression of politics and uses political symbolism and indeed theological symbolism. Um, Three has the surface impression of politics as well. And part of the turnoff in playing that one was simply that they were frustratingly not handled, right? So it's distracting to me even more so than if the game is explicitly and overtly political as Disco Elysium undoubtedly is. Um, and and Disco Elysium is a game about embracing uh, that, you know, the political discussion and the consideration of them, this alternate setting um, as, as a, you know, the game as vehicle for entertaining and thinking about different political ideologies in, in this, intense and interesting way in story mechanics are literally a political conversation you are just like that is the mechanical basis of the game is talking about
1: politics half the time
2: right um and that's less frustrating to me than playing a far cry because at least it's in the game it's something the game is engaging with it's more frustrating to me and i think this goes with a lot of uh criticism in that discourse every time there is a far cry announced and teased and then released you're sitting there and you're playing this game and the trappings of politics appear in the game and there is no further discussion there's no further engagement inside of the game so it's like it's it's the worst of all worlds you're you have this thing it's inside of what might otherwise be sandbox headshot hang glide and blow up red barrels fun time so that might be a little distracting okay but then if you're going to distract me with that from hang gliding headshot fun time let's you know actually do that yeah let's do it Yeah. yeah and far cry is just like oh no no we're just we're just here to pop this up so that it's in it's you know it's in the frame of your vision it's in the corner of your eye at all times but you never actually get to engage with it and for and, and Ubisoft as a studio is firmly planting their flag on that. They they intend for that to happen. Yeah. The politics are here, but you don't get to actually engage with them inside the game at all. Oh I man, think that's fair. We're in both fair. worlds. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's fair, and I think that totally speaks to like, you know, I think a lot of this comes from me being in a, in a relatively like. Privileged, not vulnerable position, but like I can easily bracket that stuff off. And some of that has to do with my own like work and my ability to bracket some pretty heinous stuff off just because like I feel like that was how I was trained to do things. Yeah. Right. Like, and you know, that's not necessarily a strength either. Uh, but I can do it, I can turn off parts of my brain that, you know, in other contexts, my scream. Uh, But it's interesting, right? Because it suggests there's almost this, like, spectrum. There's on the one hand, or, like, imagine, like, three different positions you could occupy. There's, like, the game, like, Disco Elysium, that leans into its political content, right? Then there's the game, like, Far Cry, that includes that political content as a kind of selling point, but then won't, like, do much with it, right? Or will do stuff with it in a very sort of lazy fashion so that you know, colonial politics turns into like really just a James Bond villain, right? Especially by the time you get to something like Far Cry 4, but even Far Cry 3, arguably. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got almost every Nintendo game, which there are political elements in Nintendo games. I think, you know, for example... I forget who it was that wrote a pretty nice article on like Breath of the Wild and climate change, right? There's been a few of those, but there was a really good one that came out in a recent article uh, or a recent issue of Paradoxa, the science fiction, uh, we'll do it later, whatever.
2: Um, Or or you could, you know, point in a studio way to the large differences in how a company like Sega treats uh, LGBTQ plus workforce to the point of sponsoring Tokyo Pride and how Nintendo completely elides any internal or external reference. Um, It's it's, it's like, I mean, weirdly, it's (laughs) like a Japanese version of like family
1: values, right? And it's a hell of a lot more or a hell of a lot less pernicious probably than that like moral majority family values that emerges in the 1980s and becomes like one of the defining elements of the Republican (laughs) Party, right? But there's still that, like, we're going to bracket off this stuff on the assumed basis that what we're doing is child-friendly and child-friendly means we don't have to deal with politics. But on the other hand, you know what, still like Breath of the Wild doesn't flag itself as like, this is the game about climate change. This is the climate fiction in games. And therefore it's important. Um, and therefore you should enjoy the fact that you're becoming a better citizen of the world by playing Breath of the Wild. Um you can you can probably actually do that and get a sandbox experience at the same time, but I suppose to Nintendo's credit, they don't try to capitalize on that. I
0: guess if that makes sense. Until but not they their do, yeah. uh, un, until they do Animal Crossing, Molotovs <laughs> on Wall Street, <laughs> right. That that's
2: and, when they were take their their big leap into politics. As soon yeah. as Nate gets yeah. hired as a, a game director, yeah, of, that's yeah. why. Actually,
0: why how I got started here. I'm trying to get their attention on the podcast because I think it's a really good idea.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm.
0: Animal
1: Crossing is a game that like has a really weird relationship to credit and debt, but we don't need to go into that. Yeah, um, it could we tweet Baby's this first out there? mortgage?
0: <laughs> I think could we tweet this podcast at Nintendo and see if I can make uh of molotov flinging animal crime, you can tweet everything on nintendo all right all right I, <laughs> I, my I, nintendo Just nintendo i hi my, my name my name's nate and <laughs> i would really like to make an anti-capitalist molotov cocktail based uh animal crossing game for you
2: <laughs> exactly The vision is ready to go. It's it's right there. (laughs) It's right right there. All we need to do is work out literally everything else about the game.
0: (laughs) I think we've got it. I think we've got a start for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're not going to resolve this conversation. And I don't think we should, right? Like we shouldn't try to like tie some bow on it. Um, It's messy and it's messy in part because like, politics are messy and it's messy in part because, you know, the politics in gaming of gamers of the label or identity of gamers or gaming culture or whatever you want to call it, uh, is messy sometimes in a good way, often in a bad way. Um, especially when it gets like exclusionary and who gets to call themselves a gamer. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a funny moment. And, a, you know, at the very least, I guess, like I remember that moment. I want to say it was another Ubisoft game, maybe even like a Division mobile game. Oh yeah, Ubisoft. Where they were like trying to all use all those
2: Tom Clancy licenses. But it was also like Just this was the moment piss, they were trying Tom to use Clancy. Black Lives Matter
1: sort of yeah. stuff in like something, or like there was like a vague, <sighs> more than vague resemblance between like Black Lives Matter protests and like maybe the vaguely kind of like sort of sympathetic bad guys in a game that was being made um like will they go too far will they become terrorists kind of thing uh you know so there are moments where you just have to be able to like call out a developer and say like nah nah (laughs) you know like please don't (laughs) please don't um and then there are moments where you should like dig and be like okay what what does it mean that we want a game to like reckon with politics in some way right because like frankly Mm -hmm. like I like punching Nazis. I like shooting them in the face in a Wolfenstein game. But like that game, like, you know, it's not like a game was all that interesting when it came to its stuff. Like, although, you know, it's actually got an interesting sort of like ragtag group um, involved. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's lots of stuff um, that we could keep talking about. But I don't know. How do we... Are there any other games folks want to talk about? Anything that were... People are dying to talk about before we log off. I'm playing Mass Effect for the first time. I'll just say, and I'm ridden a little piece on the game
2: with no politics.
1: Yeah, no politics whatsoever. Ashley's not a racist. She really just wants to protect the alliance, the human alliance. The main character's name isn't (laughs)
2: Shepard.
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. I'm enjoying the game. I'm enjoying the game. Um, even though it's not Star Trek Next Generation, which is basically what my article going on the website is about. Um, it's literally just called Mass Effect Isn't Star Trek. I don't think I'm naming it anything other than that. That's it's a good that. title.
2: No subtitle. Yeah. Um <laughs> It isn't Warhammer 40k, Mass Effect isn't Star Trek. It actually be the next Star player, right? <laughs> Mass Effect isn't Warhammer. If to Warhammer could a, game, I have a sub, subtitle, you'd be Actually, can't Mass too. Effect isn't Warhammer. Would I, I'm interested in that.
1: This not working. They both have religious subtext, and yet... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm yeah yeah is we it should...
2: over text in warhammer though i mean all the heresy yeah, that's, there's no subtext <laughs> Yeah,
1: <laughs> i envy these like british pc podcasts like pc gaming podcasts where like every single one of them played warhammer growing up because they were you know british and their local gaming shops were like just active like sites of warhammer play yeah uh, not that
2: you can't do that in the states. Yeah, Games Workshop just owns stores outright. It would be like GameStop yeah. and Wizards of the Coast being the same company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Do <laughs> it's do expensive though. Yeah. I mean, it's so
1: expensive. Uh, no. We have a local comic shop that also like has an entire like. Huge space set aside for war gaming, including Warhammer and stuff. And I've never, I don't think I'll ever get into it because I just don't have the capacity. I don't I think at this point in my life. But uh, and I think if I got another hobby, my partner would probably understandably kill me. Um <laughs> uh she's already like, why did you need a PS5 in a Series X? But does, don't ask. It's for the website. Um, I'm gonna try to write it <laughs> off my taxes. I don't know. I know.
0: I know a guy who's writing for the website just fine without any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what do you um, do with a Biden switch. You have a Biden have switch. Biden switch. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the rocking Biden. the Biden, Biden box. switch. yeah Um, yeah. it's it's mostly the little guy that's rocking the biden switch i don't know i'm excited about well excited i'm i am provisionally interested in the little like learn how to code game that nintendo is bringing
1: nintendo garage or something like that yeah
0: it's something Mm -hmm. like that code i don't know i i honestly i have to google everything hardcore before this podcast because i can't remember names for anything but um that they it is coming out relatively soon here and uh my son has already been doing some practice coding on scratch um from uh, mit and it seems like this could be a fun little supplement to it um but yeah i mean for my own gaming i basically i like dark souls 2 is fine that's my whole review and that's all i have to say about hope it. is fine <laughs>
1: uh, i love it um yeah maybe we can just wrap up with like okay so you're looking forward to more dark souls 2 and to this garage uh game builder uh application game whatever it is that nintendo is releasing. that i think will be interesting and i totally want you to write about it for the site um so there is that um (laughs) i also have another game that i want to talk to you about after the podcast but cool um but don what are you looking forward to Either they playing more of the same thing or something coming out or whatever?
2: Well, let's see. I, I, Like I said earlier, I have plenty of games in motion, and I'm certainly looking forward to the concluding two chapters of Shadow Tactics. Um, so far, it's somewhat traditional, but nonetheless, oddly good narrative. that's well told in the chemistry between the five main characters and voice actors. Um, it, it's just... Better than I would have expected, uh, even even given the well trod early Edo shinobis, and you know we we all know how this story goes. Beyond that, though, I'd say that I'm, hmm, I'm most looking forward to eventually playing Mundan, mm. some point in the year. Um, yeah, I want to
1: play that too. That seems like a Nate and a Don game, actually. Yeah, it seems like... yeah. They should
0: have called it Nate Don.
2: It, it's, <laughs> it, that that would have worked perfectly. It just it is very clearly a game for me. Um, it has these all of its textures were like hand penciled before they were transformed into virtual textures, so it has this handmade appeal, and it's a horror horror game set inside of all of that beautiful art um and uh yeah so i am sure eventually i'll be headed in that direction it just has very stiff competition for like good thoughtful horror game mind share for me because i played uh devotion a few months ago and i i I can't stop thinking about devotion devotion Mm -hmm. is just an incredible game is an outstanding game it's a game i feel lucky to have even been able to play it all after it was de facto almost worldwide censored by the prc Hmm. um not even for its actual content uh but for an art asset that was in in a corner of it um and it's it's just so tremendously good and in that same niche that I, I still need time to sit with it before I move on to, to Mundan, I think.
1: That well, seems entirely there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm, like, super excited about right now. I guess one thing, there's a rumor going around, Resetera, apparently, that uh, Psychonauts 2 might shadow drop during E3. And there is apparently reason to believe that that's not... Impossible because apparently development seems to actually be more or less done, uh, according to sort of recent articles that have been sort of circulating. Uh, I don't know how true that is though. Uh, But I'm looking forward to playing Psychonauts 2 sometime this year, which I think seems very likely. Um, And I won't have to pay extra for it other than my Game Pass subscription. So that's exciting. I'm excited that it is apparently an open secret that Arcane has a new game announcement. Uh, that they've been working on for a while. That's going to be a game E3 announcement uh, from their, I think their Austin studio has a new game uh, to announce. And I'm looking forward to playing Deathloop at some point this year, hopefully. Yeah, none of those are anytime soon, but that's what I'm, (laughs) I don't know, Deathloop's been getting a lot of, uh, I guess, previews been coming out from uh, journalists playing it. and uh, we're not quite in the league where I'm getting that invitation or any of us are getting that invitation, but but I can read.
0: <laughs> there's one thing I can do. <laughs> Gamers with glasses, colon, we can read.